Welcome back to Two Jane Does. Exorcisms, man. Let's talk about it. <laughs> this podcast contains some adult language, graphic descriptions of crime scenes, sexual assault, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. case we're going to be talking about today brings us to the UK. So we're jumping across the big pond once again. And in particular, we are going to be talking about Michael Taylor, aka the Osset murder, which is the case where pleading insanity actually worked. I feel like that doesn't happen very often. No, I feel like they put you through a bunch of shit just to prove that you're insane. Because you can talk out of your head, but when, like, a psych is looking at you and you're like, hmm, it's kind of fishy, it's easier said than done. Right, like, you can't just be talking out of your mind and expect people to believe that you're insane when you're not really insane. You just don't want the punishment that you should deserve. Exactly. So you play the insanity card. So the Taylor family called the Osset District of Havercroft their home in 1974. And this family consisted of 31-year-old Michael Taylor, his wife Christine, their five children, and their family dog. The family and their home was considered mostly a cheerful and happy one by their friends and neighbors. And Michael in particular was described by those who knew him as mild-mannered, but a generally kind and loving father and husband. It was noted, however, that he was sometimes prone to minor bouts of depression, which, same, the cause of which had been due to a severe back injury. (laughs) (laughs) You're just gonna whiz by the fact that you just said same (laughs) and keep it moving. The cause of which had been due to the severe back injury he had received a number of years before and which had left him with chronic pain and an inability to find long-term employment. Apart from this observation, nothing else seemed to be amiss or unusual in the Taylor household. Quite a little charming family. Yeah, they've got a little uh, UK dream going on. I don't know about the five kids thing, but... Wife, kid, yeah, that's a nightmare. Hard pass. That's too many. At the time, Osset had a highly religious population and most people regularly attended church, but the Taylors had never been particularly devout. In a belief that Michael's periods of depression could be somehow eased with a spiritual intervention, a friend of Michael's took it upon themselves to introduce him to a church group called the Gobber Christian Fellowship Group, where Michael became close with a 21-year-old pastor, Marie Robinson, who was a lay preacher. Ooh. 
And just so you know, a lay preacher is someone who is not a formerly ordained cleric. He's upgrading. He did. He got a model 10 years younger than him. Mm. Michael had previously been non-religious. He soon began to attend regular meetings of the group, and he became an active member of the congregation. He became well acquainted with their teachings after meeting this lay preacher, Marie Robinson. I'm sure he did. I bet he laid that preacher, too. Mm. (laughs) We shall see. Michael began spending what seemed an inappropriate amount of time with Robinson, attending more and more meetings and gatherings of the group, and joining Robinson in congregations where they would use the power of God, air quotes, to exercise, air quotes, people of their sins and speak in tongues. So I don't really particularly know quite what type of Christian fellowship group this was, considering that they did speak in tongues, and it would appear that they exercised people of their sins. So, I mean, it's quite not the uh, Baptist Christian churchgoers that we would probably more than likely run into here, locally. I don't exercise. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, it became clear to the rest of the congregation after Christine mentioned something to the congregation that Michael had become rather enamored with Robinson. Mm-hmm. Christine began to believe that Michael had quite the infatuation with her. And there are two theories about what happened next. One being that during one congregation, Michael took Robinson upstairs and confessed his feelings for her, to which she rejected him. And the other theory being that Christine suddenly decided to publicly confront Michael about his relationship with Robinson and openly accused him in front of people of being unfaithful. However, either way it happened, it led Michael to lash out at Robinson, not Christine, like you would think. Yes, you would think that he would want to lash out at Christine if he started getting all these feelings for... God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. He lashed out at Robinson verbally and physically to the point that several other churchgoers in the congregation had to physically restrain him, fearing that he would seriously hurt himself or someone else. So he basically just snapped, is what it seems like. He went full UFC on her ass. Marie Robinson herself later testified as to what happened when Michael attacked her. She said, quote, I suddenly glanced at Mike and his whole features changed. He looked almost bestial. He kept looking at me and there was a really wild look in his eyes. I started screaming at him out of fear. I started speaking in tongues. Mike also screamed at me in tongues. I was on the verge of death and I seemed to come to my senses. I knew that only the name of Jesus would save me, and I just started saying over and over again, Jesus. When Chris, meaning Christine, heard me calling on the name of Jesus, she started saying it too. And I believe firmly that it was only by calling on his name that I was not killed. End quote. Michael would claim later to have had no memory of this incident. However, members of the church could not forget what happened, and Michael's changed behavior seemed to be permanent. 
The seriousness and frightening condition that Michael was in was so severe that several local ministers became involved and came to the realization that Michael may be under the influence of demonic forces. Ooh. <laughs> spooky, spooky. On October 5th, shout out to my mom. They summoned the Taylors to St. Thomas's Church in Gobber to perform an exorcism, which was headed by Father Peter Vincent, the Anglican priest of St. Thomas, and was aided by a Methodist clergyman, the Reverend Raymond Smith. They restrained Michael and subjected him to a battery of attempts to cast the demons out from him, burning the tainted wooden cross that he wore and screaming at him until around 7 o'clock the next morning. Which is funny that they just write screaming at him because really like what if they were just like ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> not saying anything just ah! I seriously doubt they were just screaming at him but <laughs> oh my god one of the preachers involved stated that they managed to exercise over 40 demons from Michael, representing, representing such traits as incest, bestiality, blasphemy, lewdness, heresy, masochism, and carnal knowledge, leaving behind only three associated with murder, violence, and insanity. And it just makes you wonder, like, how, how do you get these demons in you? I mean, is it something that you've done evil that was like, almost like a vampire, like you welcome them in, like you've had some kind of sin that left that gateway portal to your soul open, and then they're like, ah, you gotta sneak in there. See, I don't know. I'm not a particularly religious person, but, and, and I'm not saying that I do or don't believe in exorcisms, that's kind of up in the air for me, but I mean... I think, in a way, the demons that they say is more or less like the sins that people commit. Mm -hmm. So, how they know he's committed incest and some of these other things, I have no idea how they got that. But, I mean, I would assume that that's what they're doing. They're saying that he had over 40 sins inside of him that he's just continued to never let go of. Therefore, performing an exorcism to help him release such sins. And that's kind of where I was with, like, letting them in was, did he commit anything like incest or heresy? And, I mean, carnal knowledge. Now, I was raised in the church. Um, I'm not super religious. I do believe in, you know, God and the devil and all the evil and good that lies in between. But carnal knowledge is like... To me, that's sex. That is pleasing the things that make us homo sapiens as much, a, you know, an animal looking for some type of pleasure as, as much as the next person. To, that's what carnal knowledge means to me. Obviously, he's engaged in that because he's married and he has five children. Right, yeah. So, obviously, he's had sexual intercourse. And being, again, go back to being raised in the church. If you had premarital sex, yeah, that's not, that's no bueno. It's not good. But, everybody does it. Just saying. Hashtag. Anyways, but, like, heresy, lewdness, masochism, 
I don't know. That just makes me wonder, like, did he do one of these things to invite these demons into his life? If that's how demonic possession works. It's hard to say. I mean, I've never really seen any be, anybody be particularly possessed demonically, so I can't really say anything regarding that. Oh yeah, me neither. But I mean, if you think about it, there... The thing with evil with me is you can tell that somebody's particularly evil because when you look at the, the horrible things that people do, people like Ted Bundy who were just killing women for the fun of it, um, people like BTK, Golden State Killer, I mean all of these people, Hitler, atrocious person, you know what I mean? Yeah. So. I definitely, I'm not saying that these people were, you know, possessed by demons or anything. By no stretch of the imagination. But there's there's some kind of evil that's living inside them. Because most normal people don't think about or do those things. You're not wrong there. I mean, I don't wake up on a Sunday morning and think about killing people. I mean, there's some days you wake up and you're like... Okay, am I going to have my coffee first, or am I going to choose violence first thing in the morning? (laughs) Anyways, there's a couple of different sources, so some of the information might not be exactly accurate, but one source states that as soon as the exorcism had started, Michael went into uncontrollable convulsions and fits and bouts of scratching, spitting, and biting, requiring him to be forcefully tied to the floor. After eight hours of this, by 8 a.m. on October 6th, 1974, the priests carrying out the exorcism could no longer continue through exhaustion and decided to stop the exorcism before it was finished. If they started on the night of the 5th, they would have started by at least 11 o'clock that night. Yes. Because now they're saying eight hours of this as of 8 a.m. So they were just up all night and... Screaming and yelling at him? Yeah. (laughs) Get out of there! Demon! Just for 12 hours. It's a lot. Where did they go to the bathroom? Like, what did they do when they got thirsty? Well... If you've watched any movies, horror movies, you know, most of the time it's not just one sole person performing the exorcism as to give each other breaks and time to go and do things that are normal human functions, such as using the bathroom or needing something to drink. But nonetheless, They told Michael and Christine to go home and rest and prepare for the next and final part of the exorcism, which was to be performed the following day. And for any of our listeners who believe in exorcism, or maybe you just watch horror movies, I'm sure you know that not finishing an exorcism is not good, as whatever demons that have not been casted out still remain in the person's body. Okay. Okay, I'm going to take a time out here. Pit stop. So, Christine has just watched her husband be tied to the floor 
and he's been going through convulsions he's been spitting and scratching and biting and all this stuff and she's just like com completely chill with being like yeah i'm gonna go home i'm gonna sleep with my husband we're gonna share this marital bed of bliss and we're gonna go to sleep and then tomorrow bright and early gonna exercise the rest of those demons out of you babe nobody sees issue with this Nobody's like, I think maybe Michael should stay here for observation purposes. Jesus. And there was no information about, you know, whether Christine really did stay there all night with him or if she went home while it was performed and came back got Michael. I mean, it just says that they were told to go home. There was really no information regarding how Christine felt about any of it. I tell you how I feel about it. Hell nah. You ain't come back to my house. I could get you a, a room at the Super 8. You ain't coming back to my house with and, and my children with them demons. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty red flag if you're not going to finish what you started in that type of aspect. Because, I mean, we all know if you've watched movies that if you don't finish what you started, you're going to be in some deep shit later because... Things are still existing within that person's body. Which is going to ring true here in this case, too. Because on the morning of October 6th, not two hours after Michael and Christine had been sent home to rest up and prepare for the next part of the exorcism, a police patrol car passing through came upon a shocking and unnerving sight after locals had called authorities about a naked man running around covered in red paint. The officer in the car, P.C. Ian Walker, was confronted by the sight of a man stumbling around in the middle of the street, naked and not covered in red paint, but covered head to toe in blood. He stopped the car and approached the man. P.C. Walker saw the man curl into the fetal position and heard him state over and over, quote, it's the blood of Satan, unquote. In case you haven't guessed it already, this is not just some crazy lunatic that we're deciding to <laughs> fill a gap here in the story with. It's Michael Taylor. After calling an ambulance, PC Walker continued to the home of the Taylors and upon arrival at the Taylor house was surprised to find a police car already there and he later found out they had been summoned there by frightened neighbors who had heard a commotion. P.C. Walker approached the house, but was stopped by the sight of his inspector emerging from the front door, bending over and vomiting. He said, quote, You don't want to see this one, son. I've seen nothing like it before, and I've seen a few. It's the wife. She's got no... He's ripped at her, son. It's a right mess in there. There's not much of her left. You don't want to see it, eh? Unquote. Feeling that he had to go in, because, you know, curiosity killed the cat. No kidding. P.C. Walker stepped into the Taylor house. The interior of the front room was destroyed, with signs of destruction apparent. Blood, flesh, and brain matter were splattered throughout the house, and on the floor of the living room lay the bodies of Christine Taylor and the family pet dog. Almost unrecognizable. The blood that had covered Michael Taylor was Christine's blood. Michael had killed his wife Christine, the woman that he loved, and the mother of his children. 
In a maniacal and deranged attack, Michael had strangled Christine and had literally torn off her face. There was no murder weapon involved. He gouged out her eyes and ripped out her tongue with his bare hands, tearing the rest of her face down to the bone so much that she was left unrecognizable, which, why would you even have to put almost unrecognizable in there if your face is gone? I mean... You can have, like, part of your face torn off and still be slightly recognizable, you know what I mean? But, how, I just want to know, how much pressure it takes to actually rip the flesh off your face to the point that you scrape it all the way down to the bone, or let alone how much strength it takes to rip someone's tongue out... I mean, if you're already covered in blood, I'm sure your hands are already slick with blood. So how hard is it to grab somebody's tongue out of their mouth who, mind you, one, is covered in saliva and just rip it out? For those of you listening, I'm just sitting here poking at my face and the only thing that's coming to my head is I have trouble peeling an orange when I don't have fingernails. So I couldn't imagine ripping somebody's face off. Yeah, I mean, did he have longer fingernails? Did he have just, like, no finger... Like, what? How do you just rip someone's face like that? I don't even know. I don't even know. I can't imagine unless I just had a thought and it hurts my face and my eyeballs. What if he started with her eyes and he literally just went in plucked her eyeballs out and then he just grasped the lid either side and then just ripped. It's possible. Uh! Michael had also strangled the pet dog and ripped it limb from limb. Um, One source claiming that the dog's eyes had been gouged out and teeth pulled from their socket. (laughs) But why? That's the question. Like, you already killed your wife. What What if the dog was trying to defend the woman? Also, what kind of dog was this? It was a poodle. It was a poodle? Yes. I didn't think the animal lovers out there needed to know the specific breed, but it was a poodle. (sighs) Poodles are awful dogs anyway, but I still don't want to see them ripped apart limb from limb. And I'm sorry to anybody who owns a poodle. It was described as being the most horrific crime scene that any police officer who had attended ever seen. A source claims that Michael was taken into police custody from the hospital and when interviewed some hours later, when he was deemed rational to talk, he was asked to try and explain what had happened. He told Detective Inspector Brian Smith about the exorcism that had occurred only hours before, saying, quote, It was a long night. They danced around me and burned my cross because that was tainted with evil. They had me in the church all night, looked at my hands, I was banging on the floor, the power was in me. I couldn't get rid of it and neither could they. They were too late. I was compelled by a force within me to destroy everything living within the house." End quote. Although Michael claimed he could remember nothing of the actual murder, claiming to deeply love his wife, when asked by D.I. Smith how he felt, Michael replied, quote, "...released. I am released. It is done." The evil in her has been destroyed. End quote. So all along, you know, Christine's thinking that Michael is the one that has all this evil with him, but here he is saying that it was her 
who had the evil in her and that he released all of that out of her. Michael's trial began in March where his defense attorney claimed that the Christian Fellowship Prayer Group was actually more of a fanatical cult and had managed to influence Michael by using potent mind control and indoctrination, feeding his already existing mental issues. Blame was also apportioned to the exorcism itself. The prosecution claimed that the ritual had taken its toll on an already mentally disturbed man and coupled with the warped religious ideals and beliefs that the prayer group had instilled in him, these negative influence had pushed Michael over the edge into a realm of madness and murder. Which, if you, I'm not saying that this place wasn't a cult, and I'm not defending his actions whatsoever, but could you imagine for a moment that if you're a person who believes in demons, just don't believe in them for a minute, okay? So you're sitting there, and you're tied up for 12 hours. You have to listen to these people screaming, throwing holy water on you, speaking in Latin tongues, whatever the case may be. That would take a mental toll on somebody. For sure. And if his wife was the one that kind of agreed to this situation, you could see where one might lash, like where he might lash out at her for making him go through all that. Now, the extent to which he did so, ugh. And you have to think he was already, you know, to begin with, he wasn't a very religious person. Mm hmm. But was kind of like coaxed into the whole religious fellowship group that he joined. And it's almost like he took quite an infatuation with their beliefs and teachings along with the, you preacher, know, the lady. preacher lady. Yeah, I think that's what makes it harder to believe though. It was kind of almost like he had an obsession with their teachings though. Yeah, I mean I'm sure he did buy into the, the doctrine and things like that, but... The one thing that was in his way of really like quote unquote fully committing to the doctrine and the woman who was spouting the crap was his wife. In a way you would almost feel betrayed, you know, like we weren't religious to begin with. You coaxed me into this. Look what they put me through. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna kill you. It's sad. In a way, but again, not defending his actions and what he did. Oh yeah, but I, again, like I said, even if he was just mad at her, like, why would you go to that extent to kill her? And then, why would you kill the dog? Why you gotta rip his little turkey legs off? <laughs> right. I shouldn't fucking laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but she said turkey legs. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I think it was just overkill. If, if it was just a case of him not feeling like he was possessed, uh, then he could have just stabbed her, shot her, whatever, to get her out of the way. But then he also says, I was banging on the floor, the power was in me, I couldn't get rid of it, and neither could they. And then after, you know, they asked him how he felt, he said, I'm released, it's done. So, to some extent, he believes that he had something inside him that was possessing him as well. And it's hard to say what other type of 
possible mental illnesses he really did have because there wasn't much information regarding that other than saying that he had bouts of depression. Which, I mean, I get depressed, but I don't want to kill anybody. And I don't feel like I'm possessed by any demons. And then that makes you wonder, you know, did the church have some sort of weird culty-like beliefs that he had to believe and that made him snap later. I mean, I don't know. However, throughout the trial and in the years following it, the chief Anglican priest who had been in charge of Michael's exorcism, Father Peter Vincent, continued to insist that Michael Taylor had indeed been inhabited by demons and that the offset case had indeed been an authentic case of demonic possession. Father Vincent's career in the church was unaffected following the case, and even he seemed to be almost having little consideration for a family destroyed and the horror of what had happened. He simply said, quote, God will bring good out of this in his own way, end quote. It was only Peter Vincent's partner in the exorcism, the Reverend Raymond Smith, that seemed to admit that the situation had not been handled well and that the exorcism had indeed failed. Yeah, no shit, Rev. So you have one person who's like, yeah, it's whatever, it happens. And then the other person saying, nah, we we pretty much fucked that up. Yeah, and I mean, what good is it going to bring? You have five kids who now have no mother, now have no father, because he's inevitably going to be locked up, either in prison or in some kind of insane asylum for the rest of his life. And they don't, they don't even have a dog. They don't even have a dog anymore. I mean, I would hate to be like the next of kin for either one of these people because if I just had like five little sniveling kids shoved in my door, I'd be like, oh shit. That's right, your mom died. Come on in. This it would sucks. be tough. It would. I'm, I'm also very surprised that there was no sort of backlash on father peter vincent about this especially when he showed no no consideration or sympathy towards the family at all when initially it's i mean his fault for the exorcism not going right yeah i don't understand that either you would think that he would lose some kind of standing in the church because I guess in terms of being a priest, that's not showing very good follow-through and professionalism and the nurturing and caring aspect that a priest should have. Because you know, if you're a priest, if you're a preacher, you're the shepherd and the congregation is your flock. You're supposed to look after them. And he did not do that. No, he just kind of let this person go crazy. He just said, I'm tired. I want to go home. Let's just take a break. Go get some rest. However, the jury ultimately found Michael not guilty by reason of insanity, and a clinical psychologist testified that his actions were a direct result of the intense psychological torment that he had experienced the previous night. Michael would spend four years in custody, two in the high-security Broadmoor Hospital, and two more at the Bradford Royal Infirmary before being released. Holy shit, he's walking the streets. I think it's crazy to be released after four years for killing somebody, especially in the brutal way that he did. You know, that's something that I've never really understood. 
when you're deemed insane mm-hmm. and you don't go to prison, you go to psychiatric treatment, whether it's a hospital or whatever it is, mm-hmm. why is their sentence different than someone who is not deemed insane? Like, Michael Taylor spent four years for killing somebody, but he was deemed insane. Mm-hmm. Someone else can go and kill somebody, not plead insanity, and get 20 years. Mm-hmm. What's the difference? They still did the same crime. They still killed somebody. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think what mostly comes into play is really evaluating the mental status of that person. Whether or not that malice intent was there. Like, most people who plead insanity, there's really no... Well, let me put it this way. Most people who plead insanity and it works, their defense can show that there's like no premeditation behind this. It was a, this set me off, chain reaction type thing, and they weren't of sound mind when they did that action. For other people, there's too many other factors that can show that they were fully aware of what they were doing. I mean, I've heard of cases where a judge has ruled that the pumping of a shotgun before it's fired, that is premeditation. Just pumping it back, that's you acknowledging, I'm ready in this firearm, I'm gonna shoot it. That that one second is premeditation. I mean, that makes sense. And then you also have to wonder, you know, those who are actually pleading insanity, and it really is a true insanity plea, mm-hmm. are they actually getting the help that they need? Because I don't think that you can fix whatever Michael's problem was in little four years. Yeah. Story time. When I worked at the prison, I hated being placed in the infirmary. And the psych unit. Psych unit was less terrible to work than the infirmary. And I'll tell you why. Because in the infirmary, we have somebody who definitely should have been in the psych unit. But for whatever reason, the AC ran really cold on that floor. And I'll tell you why it wasn't working out for this particular guy. He stayed naked 24-7. He would piss and shit himself. And kick the doors constantly and he would just be laying his own urine and they were worried that he was going to get like sick and die from the AC blowing on him and him being constantly covered in his own bodily functions and apparently back in the day this guy used to be a big time like bodybuilder but the use of steroids and drugs just completely screwed this guy I don't remember his name I don't remember what he was in there for but I could tell you firsthand account that he was not receiving any type of care that was going to help him should he be released to society. And while I was working there, his release date did come, but I'm almost positive they sent him to somewhere like Sharps, which is a mental hospital or somewhere else local, or it could have been out of state, but I don't think they discharged him to the street because they knew that it would be a matter of time before he would be right back in prison. 
just because his brain was scrambled eggs. It's almost like their answer is, let's just drug them up to the point that they're a zombie so that we don't have to worry about them anymore, instead of really actually helping them become a better person and deal and manage with their mental disorders that they do have. Yeah. Instead of suppressing anything, they need to address it and give these people the help they need. And I'm not saying that prison is the perfect place for any of these people with psychiatric issues because it's definitely not. I mean, hell, I don't think prison is the right place for a lot of these crimes. It's the, no. you know, I know it varies state to state, county to county, whatever you want to call it, but I don't really feel like there's, there's too much emphasis on correction than there is rehabilitation. And that's typically the idea is you want people to be able to enter society again and you have to rehabilitate them to function in society again which means that you have to provide them with the care and the means to help them manage their own issues. I 110% agree but I feel like that's going to just take us down a rabbit hole. Oh yeah I could go on and on about this. Oh yeah because you know my whole thing is you go to prison you have a shorter prison sentence you come out Number one, you're labeled a felon. Number two, there's a stigma that goes with that. Number three, the opportunities available to felons upon release are slim to none. So why would you flip a burger for $7 an hour when you could be slinging meth for thousands of dollars a week? You You can't make these people better without making the community better first. You have a really strong point about that. Just like I know of a case where someone was sent to rehab for drugs. Mm -hmm. And this rehab place was very strict. Like any letters going in Mm -hmm. were red. Anything that was negative in the letter was blacked out. So they didn't have to deal with it. Like if you were to write, I'm behind on rent, they would black that out. So the person that's in that facility... I had no idea. You're not seeing any of the negative information. But how is that helping them when they come back home? Because you have all these negative things going on in your life. You're behind on rent. You're behind on your power bill, whatever. So what are you going to go do to re, you know, to make yourself feel better? Go do drugs. Yeah, and I mean, that's detrimental to their success because that's giving them this fake safety net that nothing bad is ever going to happen in life. I could get up right now and stub my toe and I'll be pissed. And that's something super minor that's an inconvenience. Not being able to make your rent, not being able to put food on the table. That's a whole other host of, you know, hardships that people can deal with. I definitely feel like we went on a rant there. We did. Um, None of the other members of the church faced any charges in the death of Christine Taylor. Due to how much publicity this case brought, the once religious town began to question exorcisms and their use. It is stated that Michael's exorcism was the last to be recorded by the Anglican Church. Now, that being said, it was the last to be recorded. That's not saying it was the last one done. That's right. That's just the last one where they're going to be like, On October 5th at midnight, we started this extra... Yeah, they're just not writing it down. Yeah, they're not reporting it to whoever 
they have to report exorcisms to or anything like that. But they he spent four years in hospitals, mental hospitals, and was released as if he was cured, basically. Uh. After ripping his own wife's face off. Yeah, you're good, dude. Four years. Psh, you're good. You know that monkey? That woman that had a pet monkey that ripped her, like, friend's face off or whatever? Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. They yeah. They put that monkey down, right? Yeah. This guy was released after four years? July 2005. Taylor re-entered the news after being found guilty of indecently touching a teenage girl. A week into his prison sentence for the crime, Taylor, who in the years since the trial had attempted suicide on four occasions, began exhibiting the sort of strange behavior that had preceded his wife's murder in 1974, and when brought back before the court, they once again ordered him into psychiatric treatment. And that's where he's been, I guess, the remaining of his life. Oh my god, so... Here's what I'm gathering from this. He is a law. Demons are a law. And he's just putting on this ploy so that way he doesn't have to go to big boy prison and get rocked like a sock of boffer because he's full of shit. Cool. I do think that he probably was suffering from some sort of mental issues considering the fact that he had tried to kill himself for different occasions but was he really possessed? I don't think so. I think that maybe he just, like most serial killers and murderers, they just snapped. And that's just what happened to him. He finally just snapped and it just so happened that he snapped on his wife. And unfortunately their pet dog was just caught in the backlash of it. R.P. father. But he also, I mean, Maybe he started showing those strange behaviors again after being found guilty of indecently touching a girl that he, he definitely, would go to prison. He's probably drooling and like playing with his crap and doing all this bull stuff. So that way they'd be like, yeah, here he is. He's he's losing his mind again. He got this receipt right here showing in his chart where he did the same stuff. Guess we gotta get him back in and get him on lithium and whatever else we do and psychiatric hospitals but yeah I think I think he's just I think the fact that he started exhibiting that same behavior so many years later is just making a mockery of the sentence that he got for when he killed his wife fun little fact though about this is that Taylor's case was actually mentioned in the 2021 film The Conjuring The Devil Made Me Do It which is based on another case in which a killer claimed demonic possession, that of Arne Cheyenne Johnson, who killed his landlord with a pocket knife in a fit of rage in 1981. Taylor's case also makes a prominent appearance in David Peace's novel 1977, the second of Peace's Red Riding Quartet. Taylor, renamed Michael Williams, is exorcised by Father Martin Laws, the series main villain and afterward kills his wife Carol by driving a nail into her skull. <laughs> Jack Whitehead, one of the two protagonists, witnesses the exorcism of Williams and the murder of Carol Williams, his ex-wife, which as in real life takes place in Osset. 
So his case actually was used in some popular movies, novels, just due to how much publicity his case actually got and the fact that it caused so much controversy in the religious aspect of exorcisms. So, let us know. Do you believe in demons? Have you ever been possessed by demons? Hit us up on our email, tjandazityahoo.com. Do you believe in exorcisms? Do you think they play a role in people's mental illnesses? Do you think that being released after four years is, just means that you're cured of your demons and issues? Thanks for listening to Two Jane Does. I'm Emily. And I'm Kayla. Remember to tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. as we dive into a new case. Please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and leave us a good review so that way others can notice us too. Catch us on Facebook at Two Jane Does where you can find updates on our episodes and links to our other social media accounts.